podcast has bad words. <laughs> All right, y'all. Here we are with Pete Rollins from the Fundamentalists podcast. Yeah, That's right. They're well remembered. Yes, indeed. <laughs> if I phone in, do I get free stuff? Because I notice that every time you yeah. people phone in, they get free stuff. I'm like, I'm totally going to phone in. Of course, man. Yeah. We'll give you a book and tickets to our show. Oh, brilliant. Oh, God. Yeah. We're like the government. We Can just I sell out Nebo? <laughs> With no regard for spending. That's right. Yeah. All right, well, we have a lot to talk about today, including bad desires. Mm. I want to talk about, um, well, we have some more questions as well. But I, I heard you on your podcast, on The Fundamentalist, talking about the difference between demand and desire recently. Oh. So maybe we could dive into to that a little bit. Very good. You've been listening. That's, that's good, yeah. <laughs> demand and desire. Yeah, this is, so the easiest way to kind of parse out the difference is that um. Demands are are the things that society or your family tell you that you have to do. So when you're growing up in your family, it's like you have to eat at a certain time, you have to do certain things. Those are demands. Desire is a little bit different. So, for example, the demand might be your parents say, never settle anything with a fight. You know, always use your words and tell an authority if someone's bad to you in school. Mm -hmm. Right. That's a demand. Mm -hmm. But then you get you get bullied and you don't you don't hit the person and your parents are like, oh, that was good. I'm glad you didn't do that. But you kind of feel like they wish you had. Right. They're not saying it. The demand is what they say. The desire is what they're feeling or the mm. other way around. You know, you hit them, you hit the person and they say you shouldn't have done that. But you see a little smile in their face going like, we're <coughs> glad you did. Right. Mm. And this is um this is like when we're growing up this feeling of the difference between what's demanded of us and what's desired of us what what the other really wants are they always in conflict though or no not always in fact the, in fact it's so minimal it's not noticeable i mean if unless you make the distinction you hardly would notice it at all mm -hmm. like if you go to a party there's the demands of how you should behave at a party but if everybody behaves the, the way you should in the party, it's the most boring thing ever. Mm -hmm. You need someone who does something that's like that's uh, uncouth, mm -hmm. kind of to make it work. But then if but if it's too bad, then it's a disaster. So it's very subtle, and you can never really say it. You can never say. And this is the issue: is that a child is always trying to work out what does the other desire of me. And we're all trying to work that out. It, we don't even know it, but that's actually, here's a definition of anxiety. It's a complex definition, but I'll kind of try to make it simple as, um, because uh, I'm a simple guy. I'm a simpleton. Am I one of your followers? <laughs> yes. If I'm a simpleton, yes, right? Yes, you are. are yeah. Yes, our simpleton guest. Yes, thank you. <laughs> thank you. So Lacan talks about anxiety as, anxiety is the not knowing who you are to the other. In other words, so anxiety comes about when you don't know what the other wants of you. Now, it might be your partner. It might be a party. Like, what is, what, how am I supposed to act? What does the government want of me? What does this party want of me? What, is, what do my friends want of me? You go to a party, you come home and you're like, oh my goodness, did I act stupid, right? What do they want of me? Mm. And even if you do everything right, you do everything the way you're supposed to, you're still anxious. You're still like, there's something, you know, I did everything right. I used the right knife and fork. I drank out of the right wine glass. I, I, I did everything right and still I'm anxious mm. because there's something about the other, their desire that you feel you might not have hit. Mm. And th this is very important because at first we want to fulfill someone else's desire. Right. But here's the trick, you can't, you never can. And why is it? 
It's because the other person doesn't know what they desire. Right? Mm. So <laughs> this is where it gets really interesting. Hegel once said, the philosopher Hegel once said, the mysteries of the Egyptians were mysteries to the Egyptians as well. Which means that, you know, we think, oh, the ancient Egyptians, if only we, we talked to them directly, we would understand why they were building all of these pyramids and stuff. But perhaps they don't know either. Right? Mm-hmm. So um, I want to satisfy your desire. But part of growing up is realizing that you desire lots of things and you don't know what you desire and I can't fulfill it. And that actually helps me. Uh, it helps free me from trying to satisfy your desire because I realize I can't. So mm. now I have to accept my own desire. So that's part of when I er, earlier I mentioned about how do you make your desire your own? It's partly connected to when you realize that you can't fulfill anyone else's desire. Mm. That's kind of weirdly connected. I yeah. like that a lot, man, because like I feel like a lot of nights when I'm going to sleep, I'm running through the day in my head. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden I get this like twinge where I'm like, oh, did I make a fool of myself? Did I not strike up the right conversation with that person? Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. That's actually, that's a really good tool for me to be able to go to sleep and not, not go through that. I know there's some kind of mechanism that your brain does that, like, cause we're, you know, that's what we've evolved to do, yeah. but sometimes it gets out of control. Well, I'm, I'm wondering how guilt plays into that too, because it's, that sounds vaguely similar to the emotion of of guilt, and I, I try to parse out guilt from mm-hmm. shame. You know, guilt says something about something that I did. Shame says something about who I am as a person, sort yeah. of thing. Um, but do you have a different take on that? Yeah, yeah gu- guilt's really interesting because, right, if you want to get to the core of guilt, um, the, uh, a good example because people think, oh, my dog feels guilty because if my dog wets the place and I go in and I'm angry, the dog looks like sad. Right, mm-hmm. that's not really guilt in a psychoanalytic sense. Guilt is is the opposite, right? Say you're driving down the street and the police pull you over, right? And you've done nothing wrong. You've done absolutely nothing wrong, but you still feel really guilty, right? Mm. Yeah, you've done everything right. You've pulled yeah. over, the police officer comes yeah. and, and looks you in the eye, and yet you're feeling profoundly guilty. Mm. That is an interesting type of guilt. Why, the question is, why do you feel guilty? Mm. And, and a very brief answer is this. This is very simplified, but, um, is that you don't want to stop. You want to tr- speed off or you want to shout at the officer, you want to whatever. So, so the demand is the officer pulling you over, you're supposed to comply to the to the, the laws there, but there's a piece of you that desires the, the high-speed chase, the getting away, the... And it's almost, it's almost sometimes these desires are incongruous with the person that we want to be or that we mm. aspire to be or that we, the mimetic desire of, well, here's how society thinks I should be. Yes, yeah. absolutely, yeah. 100%. So you're, you're, you're uh, doing what the demand of society tells you to. You stop. But you're not. You're. But you're giving way to your desire. Your desire is to do something else. And by the way, so is the police officer's desire. They probably want you to speed off. They mm. would love nothing more than a high speed. By the way, last night. This is an aside. But last night in L.A., I was driving home. Literally fifty police cars with sirens driving down the street. What were you doing? <laughs> <laughs> that would be the best. What did you do? He yes. killed all those children. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, as, a, as a true romantic. You know. 
<laughs> oh man, that's that's crazy, man. Do you do you know what they were chasing after? No, so no. I kind of followed them for a while, and then <laughs> I and love then, that man. Yeah, and then I thought I shouldn't really be doing this, but then I looked up and I tried to find. There must have been something huge going yeah. on, like the Terminator came or something. Yeah. But um, I couldn't find anything, so I don't know what it was. But it's literally 50, 50 police cars with their oh. flashing light going down the freeway. I'm gonna have to look up on. There's an app called. Oh, I have it on my phone. I think it's called Community. And it's uh, basically tells you all the crime that happens in your area. And like uh-huh. you can do all of L.A. I made, Mar- yeah, look that up. I made Mariah delete it because, she, yeah, yeah I, I made Mariah delete it because she was like, oh, I don't want to walk down Sunset. This guy just got shot with a machete. I'm like, you need to stop looking at that app. Like it's this is Hollywood. I've never Holly- even seen a machete that shoots bullets. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's object A right so, there. So it's, it's, yeah. it's interesting you brought up guilt as the emotion because when I hear demand versus desire, mm. What I hear is uh, the the intellectual piece of it versus the emotional piece of it. And I, there's so many things in my yeah. life where I, intellectually, I know I shouldn't eat that piece of cake, but emotionally, I'm like, ooh, I really want that piece of cake. Oh, yeah. I don't know why I keep going back to cake. I just <laughs> I haven't had cake in a while, and it's just been on my mind. But, but I mean, is that another way to look at it, kind of? Or is that oversimplifying it? Yeah, so so the demand is kind of... Into, yeah, the demand is conscious. The demand's kind of what you're aware of. Mm-hmm. Yes, and the desire... Is is not what you're so aware of? Is that what you mean? Yeah, the, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, No, that's true. And Lacan had this interesting idea that actually we feel guilty when we don't, when we don't admit our desire, when mm. we don't kind of. And, yeah. And here's the thing, because that can and we need we feel to feel ashamed. Yeah. Like, here's the thing is, he said, don't give ground to your desire, which makes you think, if I want to pull legs off spider, should I just do that? But he, he's not talking so much about that, but he's talking about that your desire is a structure, right? So for example, you know, here's an example. If you want children, you want kids, that's a desire, concrete desire, you want kids. But the structure of the desire is that you want to be creative. You want to produce something. Mm. And so even if you can't have kids, it doesn't mean you have to compromise your desire. That desire can actually manifest in multiple really, really good ways, yeah. really productive ways. So when he says don't compromise in your desire, he's not saying that if I desire a particular person, don't you know stalk them until they go out with you. Um, but he's saying that that or there, there's a certain sense in which we have desire structures that we need to um, that if we that if we repress and deny, will destroy us. We'll start feeling guilty. We'll feel angry will feel depressed and that causes damage yeah i think that's what we see with a lot of uh people who grow up repressing their their desires their feelings their thoughts their their whole life their their impulses there's a difference between i guess repressing an impulse and not acting on the impulse as well right you can fully admit that you have an impulse but uh, Ryan has done it several times with cake just now. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, he has an impulse to eat cake, but he doesn't have a, an entire sheet cake in front of him mm-hmm. eating it right now. <laughs> I would never even eat a sheet cake. Or do you say shit cake? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was hearing. Yeah, a sheet cake? You know, it's a, it's a, a sheet of cake. I know what a sheet of cake is. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we got this segment called More About Less where we try to... Um, we try to read something uh, on the podcast, and today's article is from Bustle, and I thought this was appropriate since we're talking about desire. It's uh, called Five Insane Ideas About Sex from Ancient Philosophers. 
Wow. <laughs> All right. Because philosophers are very uh, expert on sex. <laughs> not, they're not. Usually they do philosophy because they're so bad at sex. <laughs> We're about to learn that for sure. Yeah. Right. So uh, I'm going to skip past the preamble here. We'll put a link to this in the show notes as well. So if you want to read the whole thing, you can. But the, these are five ideas. The first one is from Gahung. Let's start with everybody's favorite fourth century Taoist, Gahung. Hung viewed sex as a means of achieving immortality. <laughs> However, in order to do so, he said that men needed to conserve the vital energy found in their semen by refraining from ejaculating during sex. Why am I like a four-year-old boy? Like any time I read semen or ejaculating, <laughs> I want to like giggle. Dude, it's taking everything I have to not <laughs> laugh all the way through this. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, okay, so it's, it sounds like the most miserable sex life, by the way. <laughs> maybe, but I think well, I think Pete yeah. is going going to. We're going to talk about the whole impulse thing too. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure here. Uh, so Gahong thought that holding in semen allowed a man's. Uh, allowed a man's sacred essence known as Jing to shoot up through the spine to the brain rather than being released through ejaculation. Sounds scientific. Yeah. Oh, and ejaculation also led to disease and premature aging in his book. <clears throat> so while, of course, scientifically that's not true, there is not a uh, energy that called Jing that shoots up through the spine necessarily, but there might be something uh, to... Not constantly. I mean, we all avoid masturbating in public. Well, at least most of us do. Right? <laughs> well, after that last time, last week, I started to. Yeah. It causes too many problems. Never again. The practical issues alone. Right. It's right. <laughs> and, and, and so, like, there, there is something to recommend. Like, let's not, let's not act on that impulse all the time. Yeah. But also maybe there's a, a, I don't know, a healthy in-between? Yeah, well, this sounds like Sting. Doesn't Sting, he can have sex for days without... A tantric sex, uh, yeah, I think yeah, they call yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. Okay, can I briefly outline like three types of sex? Mm-hmm. Like three se- sex structures. I Missionary. Mean, yes, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, there's more than three. Is it more than three? <laughs> <laughs> I thought there was only three. <laughs> yeah, I know, that's right. I'm <laughs> struggling. Yeah, I thought there was only two. I'm oh, yeah. yeah, please. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Sean, um, write these in the show notes. Yeah, this is your next book. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, uh, so let's let's go with the the very the most normal, which is a little bit of obstacle to sex. Right? We want a little bit of an obstacle. So most people know this, like date nights. Right? A lot of people in America I hear them talk about date nights. Right? Yep. Why? Which is just a code for let's have sex. Mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. But it's not really because you have to have the go out for the meal. You have to do all the dressing up and whatever in order to have the sex. That's a typical kind of uh, neurotic structure, which is you have to have an obstacle that generates the desire to transgress the obstacle to have the sexual event. Um, and that's most of us know that even if it's candles or gifts or all of these little obstacles that get in the way of right. having the desire that actually generates the desire mm. right so that's that secondly and i think this is this philosopher maybe if i knew them if i had them on the couch um is that a perverse structure um, and all of these structures are equally fine but is that one where you directly enjoy the obstacle where actually you mm. get more sexual pleasure out of not having the thing at the end 
than having a thing. So whether you're you're going like I, it's the meal that I really like, not the sex after it. To the idea of this guy saying he wants to basically have, basically what he's saying is he wants to have eternal sex without orgasm. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, if you, we can go quite graphic here, can't we? Yeah, sure. Sure, right. Yeah. yeah. So if you have a neurotic, they will go to a prostitute. Right. Mm. So the obstacles are what? What are the obstacles? Well, it's transgressive. They can't tell their parents or their family. It's costs money. It's it's not seen. So there's lots of obstacles that make it desirable. Mm-hmm. But if but but another structure is going to uh, a fetishist will go to um, a prostitute or a dominatrix. There's no sex. What they directly enjoy is the not having of the sex, hmm. right? So they directly enjoy not having sex. If you want to see people enjoy not having sex, go to a fetish party, right? That's a mm-hmm. that's a direct enjoyment of not having sex. Mm. And then you have the the psychotic structure, which is kind of like you can have pure enjoyment without the obstacle, which is weirdly you can actually enjoy without having any any obstacle. Mm. Those are three. So this when I when you read that out, I was going, oh, I I think that that person potentially gets their pleasure out of not having sex interesting that's fascinating and, and although there is also something that that to, to you know, once you've had sex then you've we, going back to object a and you've achieved orgasm and 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 it's over yep. then like all of a sudden you're in a, a a different mind state for sure but that 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 can also be applied to any other object day right it's like i got the house but oh no now the mortgage bill came Mm. and and i'm i'm feeling sort of empty one of the things that the bex my wife and i like to do is we will sort of essentially go anywhere yeah (laughs) (laughs) conversation yeah do you want to ask permission before you say this talk about buying a house (laughs) and having a mortgage no seriously that that's about it (laughs) oh wow that is kinky no like we (laughs) we we like to like look at houses and stuff but also like have I have no desire of having a mortgage yeah. ever, yeah. And, and so like there's but there's a piece of me that likes the that enjoys the the like Ryan's Tesla sort of example. Mm-hmm. I enjoy the the looking. Yeah, you're all perverts. Yeah, yeah I know, right? <laughs> you're, you're, you're We're so voyeuristic. Yeah, you're a I sit there, like, I sit there like, I look at my search retreats. It's all Teslas, <laughs> <laughs> souped up Teslas, <laughs> Tesla on Tesla action. Well, I, I, really, I want you to spit in my Tesla. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a, I don't know if this is true. I've, I think it's true. It came up on my Alexa that in Japan there was this. It has to be true. Yeah, it has to be true. <laughs> it must yeah. be. Yeah. must be true. Um, that in Japan there are some people who, you know, when you go on holiday, you have to go on the flight to get to the holiday. Mm-hmm. Well, there are some people now who directly just go on the flight and then go home. Right. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to directly embrace the obstacle that gets you to enjoy the holiday. So a, a typical person has the obstacle of the flight to get to the holiday. Right. But then the holiday is always, you know, potentially a bit disappointing. Hmm. Um, but the, so these people are kind of in one sense perverse in a structural way. Like they're, they're, they're trying to directly enjoy object A, which is the obstacle that gets in the way. And, mm-hmm. and that's why neurotics are always a little bit in awe of perverts because they look like they're having a lot more fun. Because once you get once you get the Tesla, mm. once you get the house, once you get the sexual orgasm, it's like a bit of a disappointment. But if you can be like, what was this guy's name? Uh, Gahan. Gahan. Yeah. Um, if you can eternally put it off, um, then well, you can directly enjoy your lack of enjoyment. Um, it, uh, it looks very impressive. By the way, it doesn't really work overly either. It's not any better than your neurotic, but, but it looks good. Like it looks like you can, 
weirdly by en- enjoying the obstacle directly, mm-hmm. you're getting some extra pleasure. But even that, I think it, it, do- it doesn't live up to its expectation. In a way, it almost feels like you're just enjoying a different part of the entire experience. <laughs> yes, yeah. well, you are. You're kind of shifting your goal. And sometimes the way I talk is I'm, I'm favoring that kind of approach because I sometimes say enjoy the not getting something. But it's I, it's more like, and I think I used this analogy last time, but like a football team, you do enjoy when your your team wins. Mm-hmm. But it's not just about that. It's about also when they lose and about kind of like the, the history. And if your team won all the time, you'd have no enjoyment. It'd be miserable. It'd be yeah. miserable. It'd be a yeah. nightmare. So it, it is an interesting dance. How do you, and it's the difference between pleasure and enjoyment. Pleasure is the happiness from getting what what you want. And enjoyment is the, the happiness you get from not having it. You know, from 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 the the hope, the expectancy, the yeah. <gasps> I can't wait. You know, yeah. how do you dance between those? Yeah. Number, number two here oh, is yeah. from Aristotle. Yeah. Oh. I'll admit it, Aristotle, Plato's star pupil, was pretty brilliant, but he had some crackpot ideas about women, particularly regarding their sexual pleasure. Aristotle maintained that only fair-skinned women were capable of climaxing. <laughs> wow! Is that just Aristotle projecting? Like I can only make fair-skinned women climax for some reason, so that must be. I don't. Or, or well, so maybe he was with only like swarthier women, and yeah. so he couldn't make anyone. Climax. Oh right, that's what it was. <laughs> yeah, that's. He said like, I, if I could just get me one of them fair-skinned women. <laughs> um, oh, and then here we go, and that to increase quote discharge, his word for wetness during sex, women should eat particularly pungent foods like garlic or peppers. Oh, my God. Um, he also believed that sperm was a liquid that came from the final stages of digestion. <laughs> what in the world, man? Um, and did you know this about Aristotle? I did not I didn't know this about that. No, I, I, I thought it was going to be something else, so I didn't know that. Mm. No. Mm. Oh, and here's a good one. And that uh, conception took place only in the instance of female orgasm. <laughs> An idea Todd Aiken knows well. Todd Aiken's the guy who said, well, the legitimate rape comic guy. Oh. Piece of shit. Yeah. He's like, well, I have an understanding. The, the body has a way of shutting that down. Um, must be reading too much Aristotle. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, um, what is that? There, there's, a, there's a fascinating thing here. And actually, I found this as well. I'm not going to go through all of these, but... Uh, What's like the next most... Galen of uh, Pergamum also had similar sort of antiquated... Like... N- it's almost, and maybe it's that, and you, you know a whole lot more about this than I do, but um, uh, women were obviously treated as a, a lesser class for most of civilized history, not pre-civilized history, but but for civilized history. And so there's a weird sort of, I don't know if it's just projection that's going on here with Aristotle and Galen and, and, and others, uh, but it seems to me that... Um, Maybe it's just a, if I'm being charitable, it's just a gross misunderstanding of, of other human beings, especially of, of a different sex. Yeah, no, so I, I'll be more, I'll be kind of more sympathetic in a sense of for me, um, a lot, here's the thing, most kind of even great mistakes, there's something, like remember I, I, the last philosopher you, you mentioned there, you know, I used it as an opportunity to kind of explore the difference between types of desire. What I see is that in these early days, they're trying to get at something. And I'm always going like, what are they trying to get at? Even like terror, like let's get rid of all the ridiculous stuff, right? What are they trying to get at? And 
this is an, an interesting question about desire and about at, at first what's female desire, right? So at first these these philosophers are trying to understand uh, feminine desire. Right. And how feminine desire works, which has been definitely in philosophy, this kind of enigma. But it, it's connected bizarrely to actual women. As you progress, um, it becomes less, it becomes not about feminine as in women, but it becomes about a certain type of desire. But it's a certain type of desire that has been traditionally associated with women. Women's desire in the past was seen as much more enigmatic than male desire. Mm. So, and... And and so even Freud at the end of his life was asking, what do women want? So if you ever seen that movie, What Women Want with Mel Gibson, mm-hmm. it's very interesting because it's a guy who gets an electric shock and now he can hear the inner thoughts of women. So he knows what women want. Mm-hmm. But of course, the, the Freudian answer to that is no, 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 no. If you can hear the inner thoughts of the other person, you still don't know what they want because they don't know what they want. <laughs> you know, it's that goes back to the Egyptian yeah, comment. Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so what I think Aristotle in this very kind of terrible way was 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 encountering was he was encountering the desire of the other he was encountering the enigmatic nature of desire and yes in history that has has been traditionally associated with the feminine mm. the feminine as being the a kind of this more mysterious kind of form of desire than males who are like just you just know what they want and it's funny because you go like which is worse or which is which is more um, patronizing and in some ways you go like women sounds cooler like women are, are these enigmatic mm-hmm. what desire whereas men are just animals they're just like dogs right you know what a guy wants us <laughs> so I, th- I when I hear that to strip it all away I'm going oh yeah Aristotle is trying to figure out in his own way the desire of the other mm-hmm. and the desire of the feminine and um, but 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 in all of this pre-scientific um, jargon that just now just sounds to us utterly ridiculous. Well, and he's, he's also doing yeah. it in a way where he's sort of, uh, he's promulgating uh, as opposed to listening and, and trying. It's almost like he has formulated an opinion based off of a, a spattering of, of loosely connected information. And he's like, well, I'm going to go ahead and formulate an opinion and get it out there as opposed to, to I don't know, sitting back and listening. Well, it's also he also had a bad experience with women. I mean, I think it was Aristotle who, he he. What was the story? I think it's Aristotle, but you know, if I'm wrong, don't don't shoot me. Um, who there was? A, he was basically saying about how philosophers are superior and they're kind of like they're rational and they're not caught up in their physicality. And then um, uh, this woman is it Priscilla who basically. Uh, seduced him and said get on all fours and he she rode him like a like a horse in front of this some at uh, some king or whatever and basically humiliated him mm. and she was showing him that he is enslaved to his sensual desires mm. i don't know if it's, but if it was aristotle he's maybe just pissed off about that mm. <laughs> that would explain it yeah well, there are several more in here we have uh uh, Artemidorus, we have Galen of Pergamum, we have Ovid, but we don't have time to get to all of those. We'll put a link to this article in the show notes. We've got some questions here that I really wanted to get into. Five Supply has a question for us, Ryan. Can a person's desires ever be truly satisfied, or are we cursed to perpetually feed them? Mm. Well, it's almost like, I like the idea of feeding because it's the same thing, right? Yeah. Can, can you ever stop being hungry? It's right. like, yes and no. 
Yeah. You would be cursed if you could fulfill your desire. I mean, that's the that's the 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 weird dialectic here is the success of failure and the failure of success is when you fulfill your desire, that's a success, but mm. it's a total failure because if you fulfilled all your desire, you would just be completely bored. You'd be depressed. The, depressed, that kind of melancholy, exactly the yeah. definition of depression, what is no, no desire. Mm. So the trick is how do you perpetually stay hungry, but in a way that's satisfying? Yeah. And I'll give you one example of my own work. Um, I started when I was 17 to develop an, a, a project. And I didn't know what it was, but I was I desired to define it. And over the years, it became then think the decentering practices, transformance art, eventually pyrotheology. And every time I try to describe what it is, I do courses on it, I always feel. Every book I write about it, I finish and I go, that wasn't quite it. So every every action is a failure, but every failure generates what I'm failing to do. Mm -hmm. So now this thing, pyrotheology, which was nothing, <laughs> is becoming something, but it's becoming something through perpetual failure. But I enjoy the perpetual failure mm -hmm. because the perpetual failure is generating the thing that I'm trying to get. So I have this idea of, a, of an end goal and the point. But actually, my failure to get to the Amiga point is creating the Amiga point. <laughs> and, and if I can enjoy that perpetual failure, I am both dissatisfied and satisfied. My desire is not fulfilled, but it is inflamed in a positive way. Interesting. So it's almost like if you could pick a desire that's impossible to fulfill, yeah. like that is the secret to having, uh, I don't want to say good desires, but to, to having desires in your life. Um, ha having healthy desires in your life, yeah. essentially. Well, it's like it's like an orbit revolving yeah. around it, like an orbit, and that's what that's what love is. When you love someone, you're not just loving who they are. There's that feeling that I want to know you more. There's mm. so much of you that I don't know. I I kind of like, you know, the more you love them, the more you experience them as an infinite universe. Mm. And so there's this having and not having. So in our experience of love, there is this satisfaction and dissatisfaction. In fact. Dissatisfaction is key, right? If I, if I want to find someone to love, or if I want a kid, I don't desire my child because my child doesn't exist. I just desire having a kid, right? right. For all sorts of whatever reasons. Uh, when you have the child, that's so fascinating. I desire having a hypothetical child. I've never thought about it that yeah, way. Yeah. You can't desire that child because that child doesn't exist, right? right? You're just a hypothetical child. And then weirdly, when you have the child, you you start to desire that child. So desire is both satisfied. So in one sense, you go, oh, you know, you're, you're here, I'm satisfied in you, and you start to desire concretely. So our, uh, Augustine talks about this is when you fall in love, you, you may be lonely and you want to find somebody, but you can only desire a particular person once you meet them. And you can only desire them because there's something about them you still don't have. Mm. So it's like the other doesn't satisfy your desire, they birth it. They actually create your desire. They 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 reform it in a positive in a in a different way. Yeah, yeah. that's great, Ryan. I think there's something about the way you posited it, which I, I really like about having a desire that can't be completely fulfilled. I think we what the pro there's often a problem when that desire is so far away from being fulfilled. Like I know as a writer, the thing that kept me from writing for a very long time is I had this uh, sort of affinity for the perfect 
book or sentence or word or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it was so perfect in my head, so much so that like putting it on the page actually ruined it. It was an immediate failure that you talked about. And so for me, it was about getting closer to the, what well, it can't be the, the perfect thing, right? Mm-hmm. But it has to be closer to the thing I want to create, knowing I'm going to fail my way to finishing the book or I'm going to fail my way to finishing the podcast or I'm going to fail my way to uh, finishing the next film or whatever whatever it might be. Uh, and in and, and doing so, you're actually doing the work, whereas opposed to if your desire is so far out there that it is prohibitive, <coughs> it is action prohibitive, then maybe you're just not going to get anything done and, and you're just going to yearn for that in perpetuity. Yeah, 100%. And if you, if you think, if you're trying to create the perfect documentary, it's gonna get in the way. It's like, mm. like I, I had a PhD supervisor, and I remember him saying uh, to me, "He says, you know, your PhD is gonna be the worst thing you ever write." And I was like, "Oh yeah, because it's kind of the first thing, you right? The first big thing I'm gonna write." And but it freed me up. So suddenly I was going like, "My best work will be when I'm in my sixties." And suddenly I was able to write. So that's it's it's, a, it's that once you're open to going like, "I'm gonna feel." But every failure is a success. It's like it moves you forward. So you're going to, you know, the next book that you're finishing, you're going to finish going like, you want to nail it and you're going to put it down. But then as soon as you finish it, you're going to go, you know, I think we could say that better or differently. And that's that perpetual movement is enjoyable. But we have to kind of like shift our focus because sometimes we we, do, we can't enjoy our enjoyment. We don't realize, like what you're saying about the Tesla, you know, to enjoy your enjoyment is to realize that you quite, you prefer the the chase. The chase yeah. is fun, you know, right. with every now and again catching the thing. Have you ever seen in the, the Family Guy, by the way, whenever yeah. Wile E. Coyote catches Roadrunner? Oh they're, yeah, that's oh, brilliant. So there's this cutaway, <laughs> no. right? That's oh, brilliant. So the cutaway is to Roadrunner, and 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 Wiley Coyote sets up a trap, and it actually kills the Roadrunner, mm. right? So that night he's eating it, eating yeah. the Roadrunner with his mate, and his mate says, "How do you feel?" And Roadrunner's like, "Oh, I feel great." He says, "I've been chasing that bird for twenty years," and like this is, and it, you know what? When you really, when you really work for your dinner, it tastes that much better, right? Yeah. And then his friend says, uh, "So what are you going to do now?" He's like, oh, I, I don't know. You know, something will come up. And then it cuts to him drinking beer, watching TV. <laughs> and then, and then, he, then he cuts to him going to try and get a job in the local bank. And then eventually it cuts to him killing himself with one of his right. own contraptions. <laughs> and I think that's this beautiful thing of going like, when you capture the thing that you really, really want, um, yeah. it's a disaster. That's <laughs> such a great example. Yeah. Talk awesome. more about that because I, I notice in, in music and even occasionally, well, not occasionally, quite a bit actually, in literature, someone writes something that is essentially consistent considered to be a masterpiece or, or or whatever and they're never able to sort of recapture that that magic and it's especially prevalent in music with a first or, or second mm. album yeah. where someone creates then and maybe they have that huge hit single or they just have this the sound of the moment that really resonates and but then they either evolve away from that and people don't want to follow or they stay in the same lane and they keep making the same song over and over and it doesn't resonate in the same way. Mm. What is that about? Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. Like I think of immediately think of people like Van Morrison and Bob Dylan and Tom Waits and the people who just continue to create in season and out of season, Mm. whether you know they're creating or not, because they're just, they're driven by... I guess like a poet is driven to articulate something that they can't articulate. And it's like negative theology. Negative theology is this weird discipline in which you can't say what you're describing, 
but in in repeated failures what you're not able to describe takes shape and uh so someone like i think you know van mars or whatever they're creating not for you know that one single they're creating because they're driven by this object a that they're revolving around in in a positive way Whereas um, a lot of bands and a lot of individuals, they just want that that one hit, and either they have it and then they're depressed, right? They they get all the money and they're sitting in their mansion unhappy, and they can never recreate it, or they don't get it and they're depressed, mm. you know. Whereas if you really are, you know, like that poet who wants, to, I just want to describe what love is in one song, and then you write five hundred songs and none of them do it, and then you die with this incredible legacy of these amazing songs that all feel and they feel so beautifully. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, there's something fascinating about about the uh, the person who is writing, and you know they're writing for an audience, they're writing to communicate, but they're also writing in an expressive way that you feel like they would continue to do it regardless of the size of the audience. Don DeLillo is someone who who reminds he's a he's a, a novelist. Um, who writes, I would say, the most gorgeous sentences of any, anyone alive today. And in fact, they're so beautiful, I have a lot of trouble getting through his novels because I just want to keep rereading the same page. It almost looks like artwork, how he's he's matched the words. I mean, he's, you know, he's essentially writing poetry in, in prose form. And... And there's something about that where he's not concerned about plot. He's not concerned about the characters. He's just putting these beautiful sentences onto the page that happen to tell a story, or sometimes they don't. Sometimes they unravel into oblivion, and it does so beautifully, though. It's almost like there's this sweet spot of like enjoying the process of getting to this this per- perfect creation, but you know you're never going to get there. Right. But you're enjoying the process of continuously trying to get to perfection, which again, you know you're never going to get there. You're, you're searching <clears throat> for the horizon, and as soon as you get there, there's going to be another horizon. Yes, yes. John has a question. Is there a difference at all between a mimetic desire and a personal desire? So we talked about that a little bit already. So um, was it Gerard? Yeah. Yeah, he, he basically said that all of your desires... Uh, and maybe I'm miscategorizing this here, but all of our desires are made up of the world around us. And if, Ryan, you were born on an island and you were by yourself, your desires would be so radically different for a multitude of reasons. One is you wouldn't have language, which helps formulate a lot of our desires. But you also wouldn't have culture or the society around you to to formulate your desires. You would not want a Tesla if you didn't know what a Tesla was. Right. And, and so I'd be more focused, like getting clean water, right? <laughs> right, like my desires would revolve around survival, right? Sure. And, yeah. and so there, I guess, is there even such a thing as a as a personal desire? You know, so I want to say there kind of is, right? And that the way that I would want to kind of approach the answer to that is the, is is the Nietzschean thing I mentioned earlier about weirdly. Um, putting your subjective putting your subjectivity into the desires that are already within you <laughs> so it's almost like um it's it's almost in uh, desiring what you already desire so instead like people often think that in psychoanalytic practice it's all about t- not taking responsibility ultimately you're the way you are because of your mom or dad or your siblings or whatever but at, at some level it's actually about the opposite 
It's about what Jean-Paul Sartre said. He said, you're condemned to freedom, where he Mm -hmm. basically said, you're responsible for everything, right? And that, you know, Freud says, you're even responsible for your dreams. Um, And that partly, partly what you do is you you take the desires that form you and you kind of like say yes to them. You, You take them in and you embrace them as your own. And that has a powerful effect. Either those desires will start to dissipate or you'll be able to um, you'll be able to kind of subjectively affirm them. So for me, it's like it's it's partly weirdly trying to say yes to who you already are. That's a very difficult thing. And that doesn't mean ex- doesn't actually mean liking your desires either. It just means going right. This is this is where I'm starting from. This is who I am. This is where I am. I'm going to take responsibility. Nietzsche mm-hmm. said this was he called it master morality. But what he basically said is, is you take responsibility for who you are, which makes you an ethical subject. But to be an ethical subject doesn't mean you're good. It means you can be unethical, right? It means it means you take responsibility for your actions. Mm. And if your actions are bad, you're responsible. If your actions are good, you're responsible. But it kind of like you you become who you are. Does that, that make any sense? It makes perfect sense, man. It's funny because, you know, I forget what we were talking about earlier, but it made me think about how we have such a hard time accepting responsibility for the good and the bad mm-hmm. that we have created this external being these external beings to project the good and the bad on like heaven forbid i did something bad and it was actually my fault oh no i was it was it was an outside influence that made me do that yes. satan made you made you do the bad act or something really really good happens to me and and yes. you know god forbid i'm like Oh wow! I really did something cool there. Like no, all glory to God. All glory. It's like it's it's interesting how we can't take responsibility for the good or the bad, w- whether God and the devil exist or not. I mean, when you get, I mean, I remember the religious upbringing I had. Everything was projected at God or the devil. No, we took no responsibility for ourselves. Yes, that, see, you're hitting on exactly the, the 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 ethical dimension of this. Is weirdly. Because it sounds weird to say I take responsibility for who I am. Like I subjectively insert myself into myself, right? Why would that be good? Partly because when you do it, you if you're doing really bad things and suddenly you have to take responsibility for it, you can't blame somebody else. Go, I'm just doing that because of society or mm-hmm. because of the devil or because my government told me or because my family told me to do it. You have to go, I'm doing this. Say I'm, I'm in, a, in, a, in a concentration camp as a guard Mm-hmm. I'm not just doing this because my country told me to, because I had to do it because because this, uh, you know, all of the things that are around me, I have to be responsible. So weirdly, when you take responsibility for yourself, you are confronted with yourself. Mm. And there are still assholes, right? There's still yeah. a few people who might go, so what? Yeah. But the majority of people, when you take responsibility for who you are, you are more likely to try to change behavior that is damaging to other people. Mm, I like yeah. that, man. Yeah, because there's this, there's a moment, and this is in the last five or six years, where I've been able to look in the mirror and be like, "Dude, you're a shithead." Yeah. Like, and I and that's you, that. <laughs> you, can, you, can, you can fool me up anytime. You, you just tell me how much of a shithead I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but it, but it, in that in that acceptance, though, it has helped me hit head on why I'm a shithead yeah. and how I cannot be a shithead. Yeah. And it really just helps me see how really the world's full of shitheads, really. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's, there's these experiments that have been done uh, mostly in the 70s before ethical stuff, but where you can get people to 
you know, provide electric shocks to individuals if someone with a white coat and a flip chart is telling you to do it, right? right. As, as long as you're able to advocate your responsibility onto an authority figure, a big other, you're more likely to do. And so they've done these experiments where people will actually, so it's an actor who's set up to look as if they've got electrodes on them and you get literally people from the public and you say, would you take part in this experiment? Uh, this person, we're going to ask them questions. And every time they get a question wrong, we want you to administer a small electric shock. And you go, okay, so it's, it's with the university. Yes, it's with the university. It's all fine. And then what they find, the actor pretends to get electric shocks and people continue to press. And a massive percentage of people wow. will continue to press even when the person's going, please don't do it anymore. Wow. As long as the person in the white coat is reassuring them, it's totally fine. We're taking responsibility for this. Wow. You're fine. So when you advocate your responsibility to some other, you're more likely to be able to do terrible acts. Mm. And so most of my work is about how to get people to take responsibility for who they are. Because I think that 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 will that's be, that's beneficial for society, <laughs> dude. I mean, it just I can just name a million things with what's going on in the world right now and how people are like, oh, I did this because you know my people said I should do that, oh, yeah. and yeah, it's crazy. Ryan, our friend Mike Brewer has a question for us. Oh, Mike, he's a good dude. I like him. He's uh, I think he. You know, we had a really interesting conversation. How uh, so? He used to be a pastor, and I when I, uh, the last time I saw him, it was, it was just a couple months ago. And he was at this point of, he realized that church was the least exciting part of being religious for him. Mm-hmm. Like his spirituality, like the best part was like when him and his congregation would go and do things for the community. Mm-hmm. So he was like trying to, you know, look at it in a way of like, how can I cut the boring church part out of it? See, I feel the exact opposite like, impulse. The- I, I don't, I don't go to church currently, but I, um, uh, to me, like there's a certain, uh, I, there's something I miss about the sort of liturgical aspects of of you know, the the meeting once the rituals, a week. Well, dude, uh, there, know, I mean, the rituals are there for a reason, man. There are people who certainly like them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I don't know. There, there's something about about that that you often don't get outside of. Um, a religious setting, which I think is unfortunate. Yeah, but I, you know, uh, I, I guess there's a flavor for everyone. I'll just leave it at that. All right, so Mike Brewer writes in, how do you reconcile personal desire with guilt and beliefs? So we talked about guilt already. Let's let's talk about beliefs because uh, it depends on what you mean by beliefs. When Ryan and I talk about, we often talk about values and beliefs and, and Ryan and I have very similar values and we're actually writing about this in, in our new book, which is a book called Love People Use Things. And and we're talking, there's a whole chapter in there about values. And while we have similar values, we have pretty different beliefs in a lot of areas, whether they're political beliefs, religious, spiritual beliefs, etc. But to me, those are almost paths that get you to the same destination or sometimes to different destinations depending on on where you're going and so mike's question is how do you reconcile your desires with your beliefs um well i think the good news here at least to me is your beliefs are malleable and in fact your beliefs should probably change over time as you're given yeah. new information you just talked about that with mike is his belief changed and so maybe he walked away from yeah the the formal formal structure. Well, he hasn't walked of, away from anything. He was just talking about how his belief was going to church every Sunday and sitting down for two hours and doing the, you know, uh, either participating as a pastor or as a uh, as a 
a participant and he it was the least favorite part but he believed that that's what he had to do and i think that is where you reconcile it it's like do your beliefs create this wall or does it create this uh this tension like when i think about how i was encouraged to smite gay people and how i was encouraged to not just smite them but to hate what was bad i mean the bible says hate what is bad and here's what's bad and you should hate that but it never felt right to hate them but because it was my belief i was like well you know i got to do this because this is what i'm supposed to do but you know once i was able to kind of look at the emotional side of it versus the belief side of it i'm trying to tie this in with uh desire and uh the demand but there's there's some kind of differentiation where i could i could look at the belief and i could say yeah, but that belief doesn't make any sense. I think you desired to you know, the, the gay people thing is a is a is an obvious uh, where the, an obvious incongruity where you felt your belief uh, your desire was to treat people who happen to be gay equally, mm-hmm. but the belief that was sort of thrust upon you the the mimetic uh, the mimetic uh, desire in a way which became the belief. The, the mimetic desire of that particular community was uh, incongruous with your actual personal desire, we could call it, right? Yeah, yeah, because yeah, there's multiple desires going on there. Maybe it's a desire to fit into the community. Yeah. There's a desire to have the truth. There's mm. a desire. So when yeah. you're in an environment like that, there's, there's various desires going on, um, but desire to treat people equally. So that all of those desires are, are in that and that that you had yeah. to kind of like so it's almost like sifting through all the desires yeah and like the one that comes out on top it's like oh that's prop well i don't know that could be problematic too right and yeah also, I, I, I think it's easier to change your beliefs to match your desires than it is to change your desires to match your beliefs yes absolutely Ooh, you could tweet that podcast that's good, man. that's good all right jonah has a question for oh. us I had so many good things there, but we can't do it. I know. No, Maybe I mean, if, dude, I want to hear. I want to hear what. Uh, yeah, no, no. Add to it. Okay, very quickly. I'm sorry. I, <laughs> no, no, no. All, all right. No, okay. Because uh, John, edit all this. Out. Uh, yeah, take it all. Take it all. Take it all. Um, it, it, a real trick is because you you mentioned like our desires are so connected and infused with our beliefs. So sometimes we believe what we desire. So very quickly, like let's let's just say three different types of. Uh, opinion, right? So there's there's knowledge, and knowledge is where you try to say something that's factually correct. Opinion is more about your vibe about the world, and then rumor is even weirder than that. Rumor is something that you may not even believe, but you pass on, right? Rumors are the most interesting of all. A rumor, no, you can pass on a rumor, and you can say, "Oh, I don't even believe this. I'm just saying what other people are saying." Mm-hmm. So you're taking no responsibility whatsoever, and yet you're still propagating it. That's the, where you're least subjectively engaged, and your desire is is the most kind of hidden. Um, the trick is: can you desire truth? Can you desire knowledge? It's a very difficult thing, but but is how do I start to desire not rumor and not opinion, but how do I desire knowledge? And I think that's a really, it's, it's difficult to do, but when we actually desire the truth, then we can um, reconcile the real not between, you know, wanting something to be true and mm. just wanting the truth. It's so interesting because like I think about, you know, my, my Jehovah's Witness upbringing and, you know, they refer to their whole doctrine as the truth. Oh, yeah, this yeah. is the truth. Yeah, we're going to bring him into the truth. But it's like they don't 
desire they desire to know the truth but they desire they don't desire to know the truth yeah. if that makes any sense yeah cause like they, yeah they want to desire to have the truth but they, they don't actually seek the truth yes yeah which is actually very close because if you desire to have the truth then it's a it's a slight move to kind of like shift that to the desire to and with the constant failure because basically what knowledge is is it's the systematic failure of get to get the truth <laughs> so it's, it's systematically failing uh to to get the truth that you you seek mm-hmm. and uh, so i actually quite like it when i meet conservatives who are going like I have the truth I go okay actually I like I like what you're doing there you know all we have to do is a very minor shift Mm -hmm. and then uh, you're going to kill it you know so anyway (laughs) (laughs) All right. our next question is from Jono yeah is that how you pronounce it the desire to not be attached to any desires is a desire within itself Mm, the desire to not be attached to any desires is a desire within itself. How do you detach from the desire to not hold on to any desires? Yeah, you don't. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean that, that's basically the answer, right? right? But 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 also you'll be absolutely miserable. And but if you think about it, a monk, the object A, which maybe object A could be a good thing because the monk for object A is having no desires. Yeah, but they know they're never going to actually succeed at having no desires but so, they love the journey yeah. of having yeah. no desires so Jono keep trying yeah, yeah keep, keep trying, trying. Yeah. but but that but what he is what what they're describing is a is a monk essentially yes the, i feel like there's almost like there's two types of religion you know if you if you really narrow it down there's religions protestants and catholics <clears throat> yes exactly <laughs> the true religion and heretics <laughs> we need a wall <laughs> yeah, but are you a protestant heretic before, or a catholic before, heretic? before we started um uh re- recording he was telling me so do you know about, about the peace walls in belfast Peace walls. Yes. Why does Trump not use this? This is brilliant. <laughs> um, so the the peace walls in Belfast are to separate <laughs> the Catholic and the Protestant neighborhoods during the Troubles, right? And and they're all over Belfast, and and they're talking about tearing them down now, and which because they're considered to be uh, unnecessary at this point. Although people are terrified, you tear them down that all of a sudden something's going to happen. Time will tell, but the most impressive wall can you yes. talk about oh, this yeah. one there's the best peace wall in belfast is not the one that goes up it's the one that goes down there's a cemetery on the falls road and there's a there's a wall that separates the dead catholics from the dead protestants oh, underneath the <laughs> yeah underneath the ground yeah, yeah absolutely oh my oh God. you gotta separate even in death <laughs> oh wow our our desires and our beliefs like they really create some really weird situations well and that, that's the thing we were talking about with the with the wall is um it, pete was saying before you came in here like if you were to put a wall between me and you all of a sudden we think we have to have something to yeah. fight about now even if right. we don't it's like well if there's a wall between us we must there must be something there must be something yeah. <laughs> i should desire something to hate him about yeah, right? yeah. anyway back to the oh, two yes, types of religion there's kind of religions of hedonism and religions of nihilism Bro- like you know broadly so religions of hedonism are saying that i can satisfy your desire either in this life or the next with like everything you want mm-hmm. so you think more western religions you can get you can be whole and complete mm-hmm. religions of nihilism are the way to solve your desires to get rid of it to mm-hmm. so one's basically a religion of pleasure principle and one's a religion of reality principle and for me i'm very taken by the idea of a religion of the absurd and and the absurd is basically 
Um, the absurd is a fascinating concept. So this is the third alternative. Yeah, okay. yeah. This is kind of a weird in between. And Kierkegaard got it, and I think Camus got it. The absurd is this. Um, it's it's living with it's like reality principle and, and pleasure principle. When they collide, they create this desire that you can't satisfy. And a religion of the absurd is somehow tarrying with that impossibility and actually using it for the good and enjoying it. So this question from Jono was it mm -hmm. is kind of like for me um, there are people who will say the way to get rid of the, the horror of desire is to die to it and then I say others who will say I can fulfill it have the right amount of money whatever um, but the real trick is how to desire the lack of the object of desire how to enjoy the absurd how to embrace this Ta exactly what he expressed because that's a, that's a kind of paradox that he expressed how do oh, I yeah. desire not to desire is how to enjoy that paradox that's what the absurd is mm. so the trick is is weirdly not to get rid of your desire and also not to think you can fulfill it but to fuel it in its impossibility yeah mm. I love it alright Zach is there a difference between being impulsive and being spontaneous of mm. course I think so I wonder. Well, I mean, because impulsive. Let's go back to cake. Well, so, so yeah, yeah. yeah so, you love so, this cake example. Love it. I'm, we're gonna get cake oh, after this. We're gonna go get a. <laughs> we're gonna go get a shit cake after this. <laughs> it's, gonna, it's gonna say object A on the. On the top yes. Of the cake. So yeah, so here's the thing. The English language has more words than any other language for a reason. It's to add precision to the language. So so I think fundamentally, yes, there has to be a difference between impulse and spontaneity mm. at some level. The The question then is to how many degrees are they different? Well, I think, I mean, I, yeah, I guess we'd have to get the dictionary out, but like you can plan spont spontaneity. Like if you, if you plan a surprise for Bex, she comes in to the airport and you've been planning this for a week to take her out to a nice restaurant and it's a complete surprise, spontaneous thing that you're experience that you're giving her. Um, that's a very well thought out experience that could be spontaneous. It's spontaneous to her. It's not spontaneous <clears throat> to me. Right. But right. So it's not playing on any of her impulses. It's just creating a spontaneous experience for her. Yeah. Or let's say you're sitting at home and you're like, oh, let's do something. We need to get out and exercise. Uh, let's go for a walk. Or, you know, you could sit there and be like, all right, let's go eat cake. Right, right. I guess I, I guess maybe maybe impulsive can be spontaneous, but spontaneous doesn't necessarily have to be impulsive. I think I agree with that. <laughs> oh my god, it's the first time he's agreed with me in so long. That's <laughs> all right. Oh, I feel like I'm bringing you together. You know the best way that someone can bring two people together is that a um, wall. Is a wall. Absolutely. So we can tear it down together. Uh, what you what you have to have is so like uh you have somebody in the middle. So there's an example of this that philosopher Shizek gave. I think it was in some Eastern European country. There were two groups that hated each other, absolutely hated each other, and they were at war. And then there was this progressive in the middle. And the progressive was saying, listen, why can't we all just get along? And then the two people who hated each other looked at each other and go, what does that asshole think, right? So the progressive brought them both together by being such an idiot. <laughs> so, so I feel that I can do that with you guys. Oh, Why can't we all just get along and you both go like, who is that idiot? Who's that simpleton? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Morgan has a question for us. Are our desires tied to our fears and vice versa? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, let's talk about fear here because it does seem to me to, to a great extent 
Maybe our fears often fuel our desires. Or it could also stunt them too, right? Like my fear uh, of going snowboarding. Uh-huh. I could have absolutely allowed that to just stunt my my love for snowboarding. Yeah, but I'm maybe. the type of but I'm the type of person though where it does fuel me though in the sense that I'm fearful of something and I'm like oh I got to go out and face that head on and I'm going to see if I can conquer it. But I could see where a lot of people they want to go to the party and they want to be outgoing but they're so scared of what people are going to think that they kind of like shove that desire down and don't do it. I think they still have the desire though. They just don't take action on it. Mm, maybe yeah. the desire can go away at some point. But it seems to me, Pete, that that uh, when we when we're afraid of of something, it often uh, well, it's it's certainly tied to our desires. Yeah, there's something going on there. I mean, a simple example is this has happened to me. I was at a party recently, and there was a guy there, and we got talking, and he was telling me that he was terrified of death, had a real fear of death, mm-hmm. and it was something that actually paralyzed him at a lot of times in his life. And as we were talking. Um, he, because he's also tried to find solutions to this, and um, and but uh, we were chatting, and I was kind of like going, well, here, you know what? What if, what if you're not afraid of death? What if you're obsessed with it? And and actually, it's your what what you're f- afraid of is your desire. Just like if you look mm-hmm. over a cliff and you feel like you want to jump, you know, you feel like that because there's so you, you fear jumping because there's something in you that wants to jump. So I live in the 31st floor of an apartment and I have this window that opens up and it has a, a plastic kind of barrier so you can't fall out, but you can't see it, it's clear plastic. So I'll often, whenever someone comes up, I'll see if they can like, like put their hands behind their back and fall against the plastic, oh, you know? God. So, um, but uh, it's interesting how some people are terrified of even, go- I mean, it's not, it's not a nice thing to do to people, but um, or some people are terrified of going near to the window even. Sure. You know, mm. and, and it's it, not everybody's then interested in death, but, but sometimes if you've got that fear of falling, it actually shows that you have a fear of, you have a death drive, a fear of death. Mm. So that, that's an example of how, and it was funny because talking to him, it did change his perspective like he did as we talked he was like actually there is a part of me that wants to die mm-hmm. and he was like and so because because here was he was asking me because he knows that i'm interested in these ideas and he was going how do i overcome my fear of death and what i talked to him about is going like no it's not about overcoming your fear of death you never will mm-hmm. what you have to do is look at your desire to die and as you make peace with that desire and as you work it through, the fear of death will disappear. You're trying to get rid of the fear of death. Work work through your desire. And as you work through your desire, the fear will dissipate. Mm, that's good. That's great. Lisa Pizza has a question. Lisa Pizza. How do you know when to seriously go after an aspiration and when to let it go? So we, we've talked about aspiration in the past. Um, and I think there are sort of healthy aspirations and unhealthy aspirations or maybe even unhealthy is uh, not a strong enough word there are toxic aspirations in mm-hmm. a way i mean we're in hollywood here and there's there are you know many sort of parodic examples of unhealthy aspiration the city's built on that yeah. Uh, yeah. right and, i really and, meant to talk to you how can we shift to be really Really big influencers, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> you got to start a different podcast, man. <laughs> Come on, we'll call it the minimalist influencers. <laughs> Let's not. <laughs> so, so um, uh, the question is about about how do you know when to go after a serious uh, aspiration and and when to let it go? What do you think, Pete? 
Yeah, so my first thought on that is simply to say that it it's it's an unhealthy, like let's forget about what you're aspiring to for a second, so purely structural, right? Are you unhappy that you're not getting it? Because then you'll be unhappy when you do, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the trick is, are you enjoying the pursuit of the aspiration or are you not? So ask yourself, because you, you kind of are enjoying it, you just don't know you are. Like we all, en- so people don't enjoy their enjoyment, they kill themselves and they're not happy. Like the kid who's waiting for Christmas and they're wetting themselves and they're having temper tantrums because they want the Christmas present. Oh yeah, They're kind of enjoying it, but they can't enjoy their enjoyment because they're all freaked out. But- yeah, that's the thing I do with my daughter, she's six. And oh. it, I find that she, enjoys the object a the the sort of the the everything that leads up to the surprise the gift or whatever even i make sure her surprises aren't surprises because the the joy of knowing that she has a surprise coming in two weeks or a day or two hours she said she tends to get much more joy from that than she does from the unwrapping of the gift or having the experience etc yeah no i I, my girlfriend she has there's a picture of her with um this when she was like six years old or something and she's opening up they got they got the picture just at the moment when she was opening the present and the amount of joy and pain and pleasure in her face and it's the most flimsy looking present you'll ever seen it's like it's like it's a, like just looks like the like a r- absolute rubbish whatever's in there you know <laughs> it's like that moment is the moment so for me the question is are you enjoying pursuing the aspiration that you have and then if you do then at least it's kind of healthy right you're you're cuz you're enjoying you're enjoying the pursuit if, as long as it's it's moral and ethical yeah, yeah. because that's the next question which which then connects us with what we said before which is if you can also take responsibility for your desire, it's more likely to be ethical. Not a hundred percent, but it's more likely to be because it's a good compass, yeah, yeah. Because that example that we talked about, which was where it, it, you're more likely to do something bad when your desire is put onto some other. But when you take responsibility for your aspiration and say, "This is my aspiration," if it if it stamps, stamps on other people's toes, if it destroys other people's lives, and you can't say, well, I'm just doing this because that's what everybody would do, that's what, then it's more likely to be good. Right. So, yeah. it's in, So I was working through this question in my head like this. Uh, does, the, does the aspiration create anxiety? So that's where I would start. And if it creates anxiety, the question is, is do you need to act on it or do you need to let it go? Um, I would say act on it. I mean, if, if you don't know, then act on it. And does that create joy or does that create more anxiety? Mm-hmm. And if it's if it's building anxiety, then yeah, let that sucker go. Yeah, yeah. But if it's starting to build joy, well, then you have your answer. Yeah. 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 Do you, do you like what you like or did someone else tell you to like it? Right. You can well, tweet that, John. Yeah. But, you know, the other thing, too, is like I... I have the aspiration of like doing a open mic night with the, you know, at a comedy store. Yeah, me too. Not the comedy store, but like a, a comedy place, like, you know, some kind of open mic night thing. Yeah, Mike's laundry mat. Right, exactly. And I have, I have a long list of jokes in my notepad and uh, I do refine them every once in a while and it's a really joyful process. Yeah, but same, it, same. But it does stress me out sometimes thinking like, oh man, like eventually I have to get on stage. But like as soon as I start to get stressed out by that, I'm like... Dude, just enjoy the process of writing the jokes, and if it ever gets there, it'll get there. Yeah. Can, can um, I talk about that real quick? Because no, this some- show is over. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I like uh, you. You've spurred this idea in my head right now. That so we're working on our fourth book. Ryan and I are right now. And love people use things, and it's it's the hardest book that I've ever had to write by far. There there isn't even a close second, 
And there are two main reasons for that. One is it's the most thoroughly researched book that we've ever done. And I don't enjoy research that much. So uh, note for the future, like don't write books that are heavily researched. Which scrap the whole thing and just write a parody. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, I'm not a historian and it's not my, it's not my strong suit, but it's not my strong suit because I don't enjoy it. It doesn't mean it's, it's not that I'm not good at it. I actually am, but if I don't enjoy it, it's why, why continue to do it? The other, the other bigger problem is we have a deadline from a publisher Mm -hmm. and I will never, ever, ever, write another book with a deadline because for I know for some people that actually that helps them yeah. it's getting the thing done and and uh, uh, it gives them something to work toward for me it creates what you were talking about Ryan this unhealthy amount of anxiety that is just not helpful for me and it, it actually takes some of the the joy the pleasure out of the process you're missing the best thing about a deadline tell me which is the pleasure of not hitting it <laughs> that's the that's the most beautiful thing about a deadline well, is already, the pleasure I'm, of going missed like three. No, yeah. Okay, yeah okay. <laughs> there you go. There We've you not go. hit three deadlines yet. Perfect. We we get a lot of pleasure out of that. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was there was one author, I can't remember who it was, Douglas Adams maybe. He said, um he loves deadlines. He loves the he loves the noise they make as they swoosh past him. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it, to me it, it uh, maybe it's the uh, the neuroses. It's that, the have to versus get to. Right. And I know like with me, writing is the thing I enjoy the most until I have to do it. Yeah. But when I get to do it, meaning like I'm going to sit down right now and this morning and I'm going to write these words as opposed to I have to churn out at least X number of words or X number of pages this week. It it, it changes the whole dynamic, even though fundamentally it's the same exact thing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And and yet it creates this level of anxiety that is man it's uh something i struggle with one other thing i want to talk about wait wait, you, you just oh wait i thought you were talking about our book and you were going a different direction with what we should do for our book I, did i misinterpret no, that i was talking about the anxiety oh, of, okay. of not not wanting a deadline but isn't, isn't that anxiety though it's like it's it's like again it's the have to versus get to but it's also like the the like when you're crafting something mm-hmm. that's when it's enjoyable but when you're like going through the mechanics of like okay i have to like like you said, the so many words. Like when you're the mechanics of it is not fun, but the, the it, it takes the joy out of the crafting right. for me. Yeah. Now I can get it back, and I, I I certainly have been enjoying it as things are coming together, but not as much as like when I wrote everything that remains. I I remember those like uh, some fourteen hour days very fondly, mm. and I don't have the same fondness for even though this book like I go back. And I actually have fondness of the words. I, I read it and I'm like, oh, this is going to be helpful. Like, thank God that there is a an end result that I'm at least happy with. But the process, I'm enjoying less, mm. which well, is unfortunate. You guys also have um, other mediums now for expressing yourself. True. This is an issue I have, actually, because I'm in the same boat. I've written a number of books. I'm writing a book at the moment, but it's di- like yourselves. It's been the most difficult one, the longest one. But but I've also realized it's because I have other mediums of communication right. now. So that also, like in the past when I was writing books and maybe when you wrote that, that was your main mode of, of communication. And now, yeah, you've got like this podcast, which reaches so many people. Like so in the, many more in, than that book. In the mm-hmm. tens. I mean, even maybe in the hundreds. You know? <laughs> dozens. <laughs> At least dozens. Yeah, For sure dozens. Dozens. <laughs> Let's just say dozens. Well, dozens um, of downloads yeah. at least. I, <laughs> I, listening, yeah. um, <laughs> I downloaded as much as I can. Yeah. So it means 
because even though what you enjoy the book, it's like you're also getting so much. You know, it's a lot of the pleasure of communication is actually getting expressed in in a variety of ways. So it makes sense that it's weird. It's just when you talk about it, I'm going, oh, I'm I've got a similar thing. Which I I love the book. I want to write the book, but. Mm-hmm. But now there's other ways to communicate. Right. Yeah. But in a strange way, you know what that does? It actually makes the book better. And here's why. Because you find the most appropriate medium through which to communicate a particular message. So some messages are best suited for a tweet. Yes. Some messages are best suited for a podcast episode. Some messages are best suited for uh, a YouTube video, right? And some messages fit better into a long form book mm-hmm. and the messages that fit better into the book because previously it was everything this was the podcast and the tweets and and it was all here in just in this book right mm-hmm. whereas now it's like no no no, that doesn't fit into that book yeah. uh, into the new book and so only the things that fit into this new book appropriately are what land there and everything else either hits the cutting room floor or makes it to its more appropriate medium as as yeah. a result and so yeah. uh, at the end of the day i think that what it does is it it actually makes for a better product or, or project rather uh than if you were to cram every thought idea into the you know the bound pages yeah. and also you're not paying the five ghostwriters enough that's the other thing that's, <laughs> what, heard. that's what they say i know yeah. you've got them locked in the cupboard but uh yeah yeah <laughs> ghostwriters uh, one last thing one, one last thing uh you follow one person on twitter that's right. His name is Joel Osteen. I do. I do. Oh, Tell me great. about this. I've been meaning to ask you about this. That's funny. Yeah. Why is that? Um, it's it's obviously a little kind of play um, on, you know. There's a there's a few reasons. It's a little kind of subtle joke, but um, it's kind of like it's the last person people would expect me to follow. Right. And so it's kind of like you know what is our secret desires. Like, you know, like I'm following oh, Joel Osteen yeah. when I, I when everything I'm, I am would in a sense be against Joel Osteen. But maybe there's a little part of me that secretly wants to be you Joel Osteen. You can go so. a few different directions with that. I like that. Yeah, yeah that's well, good. So if you were to, yeah, what's the question I heard recently? If you did like Joel Osteen, what would you like about him? Oh, yeah. So, so what would your answer to that question be? Well, there was a, there was a, a Twitter account called Pete, uh, Pete Rollenstein for a while <laughs> that that was an amalgamation of tweets by me and Joel Osteen oh that's great so it would be oh, kind so of good. rejoice you can have everything you want and you will still die alone it was really good it's um, inspirational you, nihilism yeah and maybe so maybe the, the, the best is actually between like the, 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 the optimism of Joel Osteen is not against the, the nihilism or the, the pessimism of the cool death of the universe, that maybe those two things are intertwined yeah. in an interesting way. It's, it's <laughs> like, if you can accept that, like that is, that's like the ultimate acceptance of, yeah. yeah. The, the postmodern prosperity gospel is, yes. uh, that, that's fascinating. <laughs> there, there is something about um, people who are really good at sort of rhetoricizing the, the narrative. Someone like a Joel Osteen, is uh it, well it's he's not my cup of tea obviously and maybe i don't have the same allergic reaction to him as you do but but there i do find something fascinating about someone who is able to I don't know, communicate like that mm-hmm. in a yeah. way that is maybe in some ways he's sort of like reteaching people who who need to be 
taught what they were never taught, although like it then manifests in very strange ways with the whole yeah. prosperity gospel thing. Yeah. But there, there all it's almost as though there are some really helpful nuggets in there. But isn't that true of just about about anything? Yeah. Yeah. And, that, and so yeah, the, so that's not the reason why I follow him exactly because I go, I, in terms of. Um, you know, there's yeah, there's good nuggets in everyone. You can read no, anybody. Well, yeah. Oh yeah. To get, oh. To, to get yeah. You know, prosperity gospel advice. That, oh yeah, yeah. Just in case I have to clarify that. No. Um, <laughs> but but we're yeah we hitting on the nail on the head. But is that notion that more that what we don't like tells us something about what we like? So when I follow Joe ah, Rolstein, yeah. it's like um again it's like a subtle way of like if some I'm going like oh look at that person with that big house and all of that money and all of that flash and their private jet like so annoying and you're obsessed with how annoying they are uh-huh. there, there might be a part of you that goes I wish I had a private jet you know mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, there's a I, my favourite show is Peep Show and there's this point where he finds out that this woman that he fancies is going out with somebody else and the person said, oh, you know, uh, Dobby's going out with this guy. It's like, oh, right. What is he? Oh, he's a graphic designer. Oh, yeah, here's a squiggle and there's, you know, $1,000. And then you hear his inner thoughts. Wish I was a graphic designer. And then it says, oh, he drives an Audi. And he's, of course, Vorsprung Dick technique. And then inside it's got, I wish I had an Audi. (laughs) It's like, uh, so a little kind of uh, subtle thing of going like, I may be critical of something, but secretly I'm following it. Like, let's, let's all be honest that what we don't like sometimes is what yeah. we like you know? and also <laughs> our desires are in conflict yeah, right the, the 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 private jet thing is like of course there's a piece of me that would love to have a private jet but also there's a piece of me that hates would hate f- myself if i owned a private jet because of the, what it does <laughs> to the environment right. etc right and, and and also there are other there are other things uh, there are other reasons that i would not want but there well uh, yeah honestly the, the cost of fortune to house them and you have to have a full time pilot. Looked, Pete looked into it. I looked into it. So it's just it's not no gonna have. It's just it's just too much, you know. Uh, yeah. But I mean, it's like it's like with churches. You go like it's not about the numbers until you have them. Like you know, there's something like like I look at maybe Joel Osteen and I go, oh yeah, I wouldn't want like that, that many people following what I'm saying. Right. But maybe secretly I do. I wish yeah. there was like you know yeah. you know an auditorium full of people going oh tell us more of your wisdom yeah. Dr. Rollins. That's the one thing and like all jokes aside the one thing I like about Joel Osteen or mm. I'm maybe envy almost envious of Joel Osteen mm-hmm. is how he can connect with so many people. Yeah, that, like in a, a fair point. In a very quick way and even though it sounds trite and I look at him and it's, have you seen the videos where people add farts into his, <laughs> into his know. talks? It's hilarious, dude. But, and like, honestly, like they just added in what, what I was already adding in myself when I watched mm-hmm. him talk. But, but Is there's that what a, you say whenever you fart in the minimalist, yes, but like exactly. that's just added in that's just added, right, exactly. <laughs> Podcast sound show. effects. Yeah. yeah, right. Exactly. No, but, but like, but in all actuality, like I'm, I am jealous that he can be so simple and trite and connect with that many. Like, I wish I could connect with that many people on that level. It's not just being able to connect with that many people, but like how he can actually get emotionally connected to people very quickly is like, I, I do as somebody who's not a great communicator as well like that's what's interesting is like you don't have to be 
a great communicator. It's in fact sometimes being a bad communicator works. So Joe Osteen's oh. not an amazing communicator. Like he tells really bad jokes and all of this kind of stuff. So that's another podcast. But, you know what? but, what, what, but maybe what, they look, yeah. people look at him and they're like, I tell bad jokes. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's yeah, it. We identify the with the weaknesses mm. often. You know, we identify with weakness. That's why ridiculing. That's why people listen to yeah. us because we're a couple of shitheads. Exactly. I, I listen <laughs> to this like, every week. Because, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well. Uh, uh, on that, Pete, I, I want to thank you. I, yeah, I want to acknowledge you. I, I think uh, what you're doing in the world is really beautiful, and I'm grateful. Anytime you stop by, thank you're you, always man. welcome back here. I know I want to send people over to your podcast, The Fundamentalist. Is there anywhere else that we should send folks? Dude, Any talk other about, projects you're working you on? You have right such now? a unique p- Patreon. Like this is these are our patrons, and we thank you so much for supporting us because like all of this is possible because of you guys. Uh, but you you know we do a small podcast and then a longer podcast tell tell them about your patreon and how, yeah. how they can get a hold of that and what you do with that because it's I not mean, just a longer form podcast no absolutely and i, and I want to say honestly you know, by the way we are we are patrons of they are, yes right? absolutely yeah, 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 100%. Yeah. And like completely honestly i'm saying like ditch these guys and join my patreon <laughs> so if, I, if, I totally yeah, agree yeah yes. if you remember nothing else from this podcast <laughs> <laughs> oh, by the way, one thing I really want to say, because th- this notion of object A, I just have to say that um, it's all, I'm, I'm doing a very bad rendition of the philosopher and psychoanalyst Lacan. So if anybody's listening to this and going, oh, are you, did you make this up? And going, no, I'm just expanding on the great work of Lacan. Wanted to say that. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and in terms of Patreon, yeah, it's just, it's a really good opportunity for me to, to, to go deeper. So it's a lot of lectures, a lot of seminars. And because I used to just do talks, one-off talks, and then um, I wasn't a, an opportunity for me to go deeper. So Patreon's offered me a platform where I can 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 do courses and can do one-off seminars and all that. So it's a, it's a, but to be honest with you, it's also allowed me to do what I do, like yeah. you guys as well. I'm sure it's like absolutely like like a freelance philosopher kind of like layabout. I mean, how could I ever be anything but homeless yeah. except in this world so, of Patreon? So <laughs> really, like if I was to sell your Patreon, I would say like if you are into philo- if you're into boring long lectures on yes. philosophy, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's go check out Pete yeah. Rollins' uh, Patreon page. Well, if you want the secret, we're, right? So we're giving the free <laughs> stuff about desire, right? That's all free. But for a hundred dollars a month, I will tell you <laughs> how to. Fulfill your and desire. I know the secret, but I won't tell you until you pay yeah. Pete so Rollins a hundred dollars a month. We'll give you. There's five steps. We'll give you the first four for free, but it's, <laughs> it's five hundred bucks for the fifth. Where, where, where do they go check out your Patreon? Oh, uh, just my name, Peter Rollins. Patreon, Peter Rollins. Okay, cool. Yeah, thank All right, you for check that, that out. Pete, appreciate you being here, brother. Thank so you so much. Here, love you, brother. Love you guys. Love what you're doing. Thank love you, you too. All right, y'all. Love people. Use things. We'll see you next time. Thank you, patrons. We love you. The minimalists. <laughs>